Welcome to Recogs, the show where we learn how the world's best business operators build consumer brands from sourcing to selling, brought to you by Manufactured. Manufactured is an online platform that helps brands manufacture, finance, and distribute inventory across 20 industries and 25 countries. If you're a consumer brand and looking for inventory financing or looking for manufacturing help, check out manufactured.com. Our guest today is Katie Diasty, who is the founder and CEO of Viv. Viv Period Care is toxin-free and made with innovative, sustainable materials. We talked about the opportunity she saw within Period Care, sourcing different materials that are more sustainable than the incumbents, the retail opportunity that happened in the supply chain crunch, and overall how she thought about growth. Without further ado, here's Katie. Katie, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Excited to dive in. So excited to talk all things, all things Viv and uh, and your story. This is gonna be this is gonna be great. So let's start from the very beginning. What was the inspiration behind uh, behind Viv? Yeah, so I started building Viv in 2019, actually right out of school, and I have a few different ways that led me to building a period care brand. But one side of it was on the access side. I was working in a women's shelter in the Boston area throughout college. And part of my job was to distribute period products. So learned a lot more about the access side of period care, found that side super fascinating. But I was personally really passionate about sustainability and learned about how much plastic was involved with traditional period care, what chemicals were in them, which were really daunting to me and um, wanted to find a solution that also spoke to me as a consumer. All of the brands were the, at the, especially then, were the old school ones on shelf. Nothing was exciting. Going to the period care aisle in a store was a stressful experience and very unpleasant. So wanted to rewrite that narrative and make it a lot more approachable for young people. So that was the initial inspiration for Viv. So in terms of the product, can we can you talk a little bit about um uh, since you wanted to change in terms of what, um, um, what the product was, um, to what was being to be more sustainable, what did that actually mean? And how did you go about as well, finding the right kind of manufacturers or, or, um, or people to, you know, produce what you were kind of looking for? Yeah, absolutely. Something we're still really passionate about and focused on is we want to find alternatives that are better for you, better for the earth, but still something you're pretty used to using or feel comfortable using. And if it is something new to you, how can we make that more approachable as something that seems easier than exists in the market right now? So the first product we launched was actually our Viv Bamboo Pads and Liners. And we were thinking about the way menstrual pads exist and the traditional ones you would see on shelf from the like larger incumbents. And the, it, we still wanted something that acted the same way but wanted it to be way more sustainable. We learned that one plaid took 800 years to break down and that was crazy to us. And it was filled with chemicals as well. Yeah, the same chemicals you'd find in a Roundup weed killer are in most pads and tampons today, um, which is something a lot of people don't know. And when I found out, I was like, oh my God, what? One, it just like the lack of education I had as someone who was using those products every single month was really scary. Um, but I was like, okay, well, what can we use that's better and um, still works just as well? And 
The cool part about finding a bamboo alternative is that it reduces a lot of agri-waste. It's a super sustainable fiber using way less land and water to grow, um, but also grows really fast. So it's pretty affordable since it grows so abundantly. But at the same time, it's actually a softer fiber and more absorbent. So like, okay, this is so perfect for period care because it works better and is better for the earth and is just natural, is naturally a great fiber. You're not having to add chemicals to it. So that was a really awesome solution that we discovered. And even our wrappers are made out of cornstarch. It can be home composted. Um, and the back sheet, which usually contains a lot of plastic, is also made out of cornstarch. Um, so I remember sampling so many products early on and having friends dropping off product at their house and saying, give me your honest opinions while you're going through all these samples. But that's a product I was really proud of because I was a business student um, when I was building Viv, but I would go to the science department and say, hey, like, how do I make a more sustainable version of this and talk to the material scientists um, on campus and such. So got creative uh, with that first product for sure. So with using bamboo alternative, it seems like there's a, a, it almost seems like a no-brainer in terms of why you wouldn't use it. It's softer, um, uh, you know, more affordable, um, as well as obviously from a, for, from an eco standpoint, way better in terms of what they're currently using. Why did you think that that maybe the incumbents or or some of the larger brands weren't using you know bamboo and that and that or kind of stuck with what they what they already knew? Yeah, I think large incumbents just don't have incentive to innovate. I don't think. They care to innovate, and if they are going to innovate, it's going to probably be through an acquisition. Um, I also think it's going to be pretty hard for them to gain trust in terms of sustainability and clean products, and um, that's something that building a new brand you can really do is really build trust with your consumer base. Um, but especially on the manufacturing side, there's the way the production even works. If you're changing up a fiber, it completely you need completely different machinery. You can't just put any fiber into the same pad machine. Um, so for them, they would probably outsource and have a whole different operations just for a product line that they're not sure would be successful. So how how did you then find like the appropriate manufacturer? Uh, because as you say, you know, um, it, it could change your line in terms of if you're using different fiber, different different ingredient for um, uh, for the pad or, or or have that as a base. What was, what, what did you, how did you find like a manufacturer that was willing to like kind of like take a chance of this, you know, different way in terms of to actually create a pad? Yeah. I, my, my short answer is always, you can Google way more than you think. <laughs> and that is something I, I think was a good superpower for me early on. If there was something that I didn't know, I would go ask someone else who's done it and try to figure it out from there or just search the internet. Um, in our space, our products are also low-grade medical devices. So we need to make sure we're working with an FDA-registered manufacturer, someone that um, has all of those approvals that they're keeping up with every year. So that was another factor for us. And um, once you start ask, requesting samples from one, it's kind of like a trickle effect. And now we get um, some emails from other potential manufacturers. But the space is small um, for period care. There's for we now have organic cotton tampons and our menstrual cups, and we have different manufacturers for different SKUs. Um, so we've had to build really good relationships with them. 
But my, my short answer is I honestly dug through the depths of the internet um, and started calling them up and WhatsApp messaging people to, to try to get them to take us on. How did you know you maybe found like the right manufacturer? I know that you work with multiple manufacturers for like different product lines, but, uh, but what was kind of like your, your process in terms of figuring out that, okay, this is like the one I want to work with maybe for, uh, for long-term or at least for like, for, for, for like the first few runs. Yeah, there were very few innovating in terms of sustainability. Um, so that was a big factor for us. And as well as the quality of the product is so important to me. Um, these products need to work. We did so much research early on with focus groups, with um, extensive surveys, and just understanding our consumers by just being our consumers. We knew the number one factor was performance. Um, so there, are, there were other manufacturers making sustainable products, making organic products, but the performance was really low. Um, and we wanted to rewrite the narrative that if you're building a sustainable good, it's probably less high performing. And so we wanted to say, okay, if it's sustainable, it can also be even higher performing than traditional brands, which narrowed that down quite a bit just based on one, the test of how many milliliters these products could hold, but also anecdotally how our friends and ourselves felt using it. Cool. Cool. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, obviously it seems like testing the product, making sure that that quality was up to snuff and also making sure that like the manufacturer as well had, uh, uh, were a focus on creating eco-friendly sustainable products. Um, and so, um, I mean, of course, it, you know, that, that kind of had to be the case for, with you all. Yeah, absolutely. As well as um, some of them had much higher MOQs than others. Some of them are open to working with startups and some you got to really pitch yourself and and push to work with them. So that was another factor for us at the time. How did you figure out how many SKUs or products you wanted to launch with at the beginning? And what was, if you can kind of walk us through like that whole the whole kind of process from the very beginning in, in terms of the launch? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when we were slowly starting to gather our product line and launch, um, we had our Viv bamboo pads and we had our Viv menstrual cups. Both are much lower minimum order quantities than tampons. So we were like, okay, based on bootstrapping with a little bit of cash from an accelerator program, like what can we do? And um, we've since raised some pre-seed capital, but have done everything in a really scrappy way. Uh, especially when we were first getting ready to launch. And we thought, okay, it was mainly based on what was cash feasible. A lot of times the MOQs are based on absorbencies. And so if we wanted to have more absorbencies or more SKUs, we knew that was something that had to come post-funding. Um, so we got creative with boxing things ourselves early on. I think early on I was shipping everything from my apartment and just walking to the post office every day. And we were like very, very scrappy in terms of just taking um, loose product without any uh, branding on the wrappers and making that ourselves into boxes. Um, so that was one component of it. The, the other component of figuring out our product line was honestly a lot of word of mouth. I used to go to a lot of like smaller markets and events in the Boston area where we first started building Viv and um, we just ask people what they would want to see. And once you get people starting to talk about periods, they are really open and they'll tell you everything. So that was really awesome. It's just getting face to face in front of a lot of different users. And that's when we learned that a lot of people wanted to try menstrual cup, but they were really intimidated by it. And the biggest thing I kept hearing was 
oh my gosh, how the heck am I supposed to remove that thing with just a stem at the bottom? And so when we were thinking about launching ours, I was also a beginner to it and felt the same way as them. I was like, oh my God, that thing looks so scary. I was like, okay, how does this look less daunting for me? And so that's when we worked on that ring bottom design that makes the removal process easier, the darker color, so there's not as much discoloration and just thinking like a beginner, um, which was great because I was one myself. Um, and then knowing that highest volume in the US is tampons. And so knowing we needed to have that skew to be a, a whole comprehensive period care brand. And so it's interesting that you, to make it look less daunting and to make it also, um, you know, kind of like the, the, the customer, acqui- uh, the customer um, uh, education piece as well, um, you actually change or alter the product in, in order to kind of introduce that education. Is that right? Yep, exactly. And I think it was a great way to help us differentiate from other players in the market too, especially um, this is like 2020 and the, and the market was really small for cups, but it's since exploded in terms of users and new adopters in the space. And we knew so many other people were beginners. So how do we make the most beginner friendly option, which then led us to a little over a year ago. Now we launched a Viv Cup starter kit, which we're here getting so much feedback from our online community and comments on our social saying like, I really want to try one. This is the first one I'm trying. I'm like really nervous, but excited. And we're like, okay, everyone who's coming to this is new. Let's just make a whole skew around that. On the distribution side, obviously like this is 2020. So um, I'd imagine that in terms of starting, I mean, I, I know that you said you started in 2019, but I'm, 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 I'm kind of curious, was it always to roll out like D2C online um, e-commerce first? Um, or was there, was there also like talks among going into retail? What was the overall strategy? I know that a lot of people had to like pivot if they were thinking about retail from the beginning that launched in 2020, they had to go D to C, they were obviously like forced to. But um, but what was kind of your strategy when you, how, how you thought, uh, how do you, as you thought about the uh, different sales channels? Yeah, it's interesting because right before COVID, when I was just getting started and like was loosely selling pads for my apartment and whatnot, um, before we we consider our full launch April 2021 because that's when we had like our full product line and raised a little bit of money and we're like ready to launch but so we were kind of soft selling learning a lot then um, but I remember saying like okay I want to like our go to market to be being in co working spaces being in gyms like being in like fun like local restaurants and bars and like taking over city by city that way as a way to grow the brand and very quickly had to become um, like move away from that and become a D2C brand, which I think was really helpful for us. Um, During that time, I think a lot of people were becoming more mindful of health and wellness and also more willing to try a new period care brand. If you're working from home more, if you're, you're more open to trying something that you're not sure how it's going to work for your body. um, It was way less risky in their mind, which was awesome. Um, and I love the D2C side of, of building a business and just focusing on subscription users and our Shopify and eventually launching on Amazon. I think that was really crucial for building an initial like really loyal customer base for us. That's also a really interesting strategy too that, that you were talking about before, kind of more of like the on-prem, I guess, strategy for um, for period care, like, you know, partnering with like different um, gyms and also um, 
kind of uh, restaurants or you know uh, different kind of uh, uh, social gathering places. Um, uh, that's pretty quite interesting too, because I mean you see that for example like alcohol, you know, all the time. But like that's kind of like the first the entry point. I don't think about that for like different categories. So I think that that's, that's really interesting that like that was maybe one of like the initial like thoughts in terms of how to launch. Um, uh, but of course, you know, also going to DC and then, and then also really trying to strengthen that, like a, that uh, maybe become like a really strong subscription business and starting that up. Um, and as well as expanding to Amazon at, at what point, sorry, I don't, I, I don't know if you have something to add uh, to add there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest thing was understanding um, where customers are, where users are when they're using period products. And so that's something we still think about a lot. And like, okay, if you're in a bathroom at a trendy new restaurant or in a nice gym, it's like, that's a great opportunity to discover products, of course. Um, but now as we've grown since our launch in 2021, it's we've now expanded into some retailers and I think when we were first getting going with D2C, we thought we were going to be D2C for way longer. But I think what we understood was that, one, 90% of period care sales happen in person in a retailer. And people, when they need our product, need it immediately, most likely, and or need it very soon. Um, and so while like Amazon fast shipping is great for that, it's a peace of mind to be able to go to a store and pick up your period care. Um it becomes part of your kind of routine. Um, so then we realized, okay, like it, it is crucial for us to be on shelf and having an omni-channel approach, I think is really healthy for a business as well. Um, so we've recently started expanding it to retailers and just hit about 2000 retail doors recently. So that's been a, a new exciting journey for us in the past year or so. That's very exciting, absolutely. How, from the beginning, how did you also like think or approach pricing? Because I think what I've found in talking to um, sometimes with brands and investors, you almost price yourselves for D2C and D2C kind of had this thesis around it where you're, you're cutting out the middleman. So, um, so your margins don't have to be maybe as strong D2C because, um, because you can price a bit lower because there's not a middleman, um, a, a middleman there um, and middleman being, you know, the retailer, the, the, the distributor or, and, and, and what have you, um, which I think, you know, that thesis largely how I think about it, I don't think that that, that thesis largely kind of played out the way that it maybe, um, maybe we all thought it would in that, um, CAC can be so expensive that like, even though you don't have your, your middleman almost is, you know, your CAC, um, um, per se. And so, um, uh, so your actual margin profile might reflect more so um, uh, in terms of your pricing, it actually reflects more so in terms of what it would be um, at wholesale. Um, obviously, you're taking a lot less money at at, 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 at wholesale, you as a brand. But uh, but sometimes like when I when I chat with investors and they're looking at brands, sometimes they their margins are actually too aren't nearly as large enough to be actually create a, a, a compelling wholesale um, a, a, a compelling wholesale business. So. Was this something that you were thinking about in your pricing that, okay, we need to price and make sure that we can kind of build a wholesale business from the, from the beginning, or was it something that, all right, let's figure out, you know, D to C and then we'll kind of reevaluate as we, as we think about those channels. Yeah. It's, it's interesting with period care in particular or any like lower cost good, right. Especially with 
marketing online and using any kind of meta platform for for paid ad was not sustainable for us at all um mainly due to like raov not being as high as say a a apparel brand or any higher cost good um yeah exactly um so we would have to think of that as more of like okay what are we marketing is it a subscription so we know there's a longer ltv here um but i i think having that retailer is one is kind of like a billboard too for your brand that will hopefully then lead to more Amazon and direct sales and getting to allow consumers to try it. Naturally in, in personal care, I think margins are a lot higher than say food and bev, which has been awesome, but um, we would still need, I, and my goal is to eventually lower the cost of our products even more, right? Like I want our products to be way more accessible. I want sustainability to be more accessible overall. Um, that's something we're passionate about as a team and that I have a really strong mission towards. Um, but I think that needs to happen once we're able to establish that volume percentage. And so um, what's interesting is our cup products are actually lower cost than most of our competitors. Um, so that's a, a great way to save money too, because it's a reusable good. And so if you are switching to our cup, it's it's a lot more affordable than, say, traditional other products. Our disposables, like our tampons and our pads, are more comparable to other naturals in the space, a little bit lower sometimes or about the same. Um, we do have a young audience online, and so we're also mindful of that in terms of how much cash our, our customers have, especially if they're a little bit younger, are they a little bit more price conscious, and so we want to able to get to that point but we need the scale first um and the the margins are luckily really healthy right now but we need to maintain that for for quite a bit longer i think before reducing price point but um it is comparable to like a a natural slightly premium brand but don't want it to get um, any higher on shelf than it is right now because of course retailers do have a bit more say of what they're pricing it on shelf and we can go back and forth and and suggest price points and have our suggested retail price, but sometimes they just need that margin. And period care, I think, really saw an impact with supply chain effects during COVID and um, continues to increase and the unit costs for manufacturers continue to increase. And so I'm really curious to see what happens in this space as um, the costs of goods do tend to increase for other brands. Luckily, there's been pretty stable supply chain for the naturals category. But um, last summer, uh, we saw that like Tampax had massive shortages and P&G was just unable to fulfill for a lot of the retailers, which ended up being a big opportunity for us. And um, we actually were in a 10 stores test with CVS last June, June 2022. And about a week and a half into our test, they called us up and said, hey, we're unable to fulfill um, these products. We have all this empty shelf space. How much product can you give us? And luckily, because the MOQs are high, we had a lot of product ready to go. And we were able to do a pretty big fill-in for them of about 1,200 stores. And the fact of the matter was that our manufacturing was untouched because we use such different materials and have such different ingredients. We're not using rayons and other things that they're using. And so it really has allowed us to have more opportunity to improve ourselves on shelf. That's really interesting. Um, as well as 
part of um, during the pandemic, the the opportunity that you found yourselves in um, on on the retail side. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that? That's that. that it, well, first of all, in terms of did 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 the um, global supply chain crunch what um, what also impact did that have on on Viv if it did have an impact on all on prices and specifically which if so which specific um, like um, ingredients in your products did it um, and as well as how are you able to actually get into retail as well? Um, and how did that whole process getting into retail come about um, with um, with P&G being so heavily affected? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of the global supply chain, the, the pro of starting a company in like 2020 is that you've only known chaos and you've only known like wild different changes quickly and um, many, many delays. Um, for us, the only product or ingredient that we've seen is that the uh, bioplastics are uh, tend to have on and off shortages and are very limited right now. And so our tampons had a bioplastic applicator, which is like a plant-derived applicator. It's derived from sugarcane rather than being derived from petroleum. So a little bit more sustainable, but knowing our consumer base, especially those who are very educated on sustainability, um, at the end of the day, like bioplastics are plastic and that's something we're very aware of. Um, and so we kind of talked to our audience, talked to our customers and within ourselves, and we were like, okay, do they care about, um, having a BPA free applicator or a bioplastic applicator? And there wasn't a big difference there at all. And, um, we've actually been able to reduce price point and have more units in a box by making those changes due to the shortages or due to any changes on supply chain. Um, and then, on terms of the retail side, we've actually had a lot of inbound. We went into 2022, we went to our first ever Expo West event. And I mean, I had a million and one crazy stories about trying to do our first Expo West and being the new kids on the blog. Um, but we like, we DIY'd our entire booth ourselves in our like where less than a thousand square warehouse in Boston that we had at the time, which is where we did all of our fulfillment, stored all of our product and had desks working out of. Um, and we built it all, put it on a pallet. We're like, we're going to go to XOS and we're going to get all the retailers. We really didn't know much about the, that yet. We, I think we barely even knew what UNFI was. Like that's how new we were to that space, um, which is wild. <laughs> um, but I think on the first day we were there, we were hyping ourselves up after a lot of drama with them losing our pallet and then finding it 10 minutes before the show started. Um, it, we put the whole thing together in less than 15 minutes and had so much adrenaline after like not sleeping for days before trying to think of plan B's. And I think that adrenaline really brought some attention because we had so much energy. We were playing music. We had a really creative booth and um, one of the CVS beauty buyers saw it and stopped and said, Oh, I love this packaging. This product looks really cool. Um, what is it? Tell me more and introduced us to the CVS innovation team, which has been so supportive. And, and that was a really awesome entry point for us. But a few um, retailers like Central Market came up to us then and they, they helped get us into UNFI and UNFI's Up Next program and all of these other things. So there was such a ripple effect from being at trade shows. And, and we've noticed that our team kind of crushes trade shows. So like we've done pretty well at them. We went to the UNFI trade show in Las Vegas, um, our first one of those, 
in the fall of 2022. And uh, we won the pitch slam competition there. And immediately after, the Stop and Shop team came up to us and shook our hands and said, we want to think about bringing you all in. Let's keep meeting. Um, and that was really interesting because, you know, period care at some of these shows is still really new. There's maybe one or two other peer care brands there, if any others. A lot of the times we are the only ones. And uh, people tend to either run up to you really excited or completely run away from your booth horrified because uh, of the stigma that's still very live around periods and uh, which is is really fascinating and so at a show where a lot of retail buyers like are a little bit older men or, or people who aren't as comfortable with period care we the first day we were getting a lot of like negative feedback people running away people laughing when they saw our booth laughing at us for thinking that we had a viable product and then Later that the night after the first show, uh, first day of the show, we won the pitch slam and everyone's mindset around us changed. And we were like, oh man, like they're awesome. They're so inspiring. Like they're going to crush it. And everyone was so kind to us after that. And I think we've had to let our personalities, both of the Viv brand and us as a team really shine through both in real life at trade shows, but also on social. And that really comes across to a retail buyer. They want to know like who's of course, building this brand and how well they know the customers and their audience. And I think that's what's helped us get into retail more than anything else. You now have interest from, you know, CVS, it seems, UNFI, um, you, uh, Walmart now is is uh, contacting you. How do you make decisions? Because um, of course, you know, you are still, you know, a young company. Um, how do you make your decisions and uh, knowing that you have, you know, um, you aren't, you know, the, the, the PNG yet. Um, uh, and, um, but how, how do you, how do you make decisions in terms of what actual retail chains actually go into, um, versus not and overall, like, and also assessing, um, can this, um, can go into these stores? Will it be a success? What does success look like? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've been excited about testing a lot. If it's something that, cost-wise we can handle doing um we're willing to try a variety of channels to see if it works if it's not going to you know of course like put us out of business or be detrimental to our supply chain or our our inventory um but we have such a variety right now like central markets down in texas they're more of like a whole foods really natural grocer we launched into wegmans um this past spring as well as stop and shop and I think those two are very different, but are both in that like Northeast grocery space. And then uh, about two weeks ago now, like mid-October, we launched in uh, Myers in the Midwest. And so that's a whole other um, type of retailer to us. And I think what's awesome is that we can then now take this variety of types of retail partners and see, okay, where are we actually seeing success? And then like CVS is more on the drugstore side and, and pharmacy and and I love the fact that we have kind of a healthy balance across channels because we are so small, we're able to do more testing that way um, as a team and see, okay, we're the velocity that's considered successful at CVS is maybe really different than Meyer, then it's really different than like a central market. Um, so we're trying to be mindful of that. Uh, now that we're pitching a lot more retailers, it's more of a focus of like, okay, inventory wise and cash flow wise, what can we do? Um, and I think that's 
kind of the growing pains of expanding into retail. It's like if you're not getting paid till net 45, net 60, whatever it may be after, but you need to do all these production runs to fuel like 5x what you're doing now, how are you going to do that with one without bringing on like way more investor capital or um, using inventory financing methods? And uh, it's it's always seems everyone's like, oh, that's such a great problem to have. But it's still a problem, right? It's still a problem at the end of the day that you got to figure out as a business. It's great to have demand, right? Like that's that's initially what you need to obviously have in order to you know um, to have a business. Um, at the same time, in, in any inventory business, you also need to obviously supply that demand. Um, and, about, and especially when you're in retailers, if you know retailers love your product, I mean, if you know consumers that um, in in retail love your product and your velocities are up, that's great. But that also means that you have to fulfill and you need to make sure that that when you get that 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 PO, that you're able to actually fulfill it and what have you. Because if you're not able to, then the retailer said, okay, well, I don't, you know, I have thousands of brands to choose from, you know, or or what have you. Why should I come back to you? So you have to also make sure that that kind of partnership is um, um, that that you're kind of fulfilling on that partnership on the supply side, which can be really tough when you have you know net thirty, net sixty, net ninety terms. Um, how did you overall think? I don't know if you had a comment about that, but um, but also how did you also think about? Um, I know you mentioned like inventory financing, um, but as you were growing, um, when does it make sense for you to use like cash, for example, uh, maybe like the equity part in order to finance growth versus um, inventory financing yeah yeah we have yet to use inventory financing we're, we're kind of actively exploring it but um we have raised just under um just about a million to date in funding um from predominantly angel investors some smaller funds people who have been really helpful strategic partners and that's been great and then at the end of the day like we have revenue so that's the beauty of a product when having a product business when you're selling is that you have that cash coming in that you can allocate and reinvest into the business to uh, purchasing more inventory and then seeing that grow. Um, the cash flow side is definitely the difficult part and we're actually actively raising our seed round because we knew we have to kind of keep up with that volume, but we want to not just raise because we need cash to make more product, right? We wanted to raise because there's an option with, um, getting to a higher thresholds of production that really helps with margins. And by fundraising, we know we can optimize our margins and up them by 20, 30%. And um, for some of our, for one of our highest volume SKUs, and if we can do that, why would we not? Um, so that's something we're excited about um, in terms of fundraising as well as, as growing our team. But I think Equity, there's so many different ways to finance a business today and traditional VC route isn't for everyone. And I definitely don't recommend it for a lot of different types of businesses. Uh, but I think for us and myself being a first time founder, I love having strategic investors and people to lean on when we have really big, tough questions. Yeah, no, that makes sense in terms of the strategy wise, as well as, as why, you know, raising equity rounds can be also very useful, but you actually have people on your team that, you know, happen to give you insight or even also make, you know, really helpful introductions. I was talking to an investor this morning and he was saying that, um, you know, he was able to get an introduction to a pretty big retailer for one of his brands. And then one of the brands was able to get into that, you know, retailer. So definitely are, you know, you, you definitely, um, having people on the cap table that maybe have had like that experience before or have those relationships or, or even guidance that could be terribly useful. Um, 
it's also like, you know, on the inventory side or even on the marketing side too, it's like, okay, what's kind of the best use in terms of like the, uh, uh, from, from a money and cash flow perspective, how to actually finance growth, right? Um, like is, is equity dollars better, better use for something else? Is it better use maybe for hiring or, or kind of other ways to use or, um, other ways in order to grow your business when, when does it make sense as well to do, you know, inventory financing? Um, we, we, we had one, one, um, uh, uh, one person came on the podcast previously and said that he almost never wants to do, do inventory financing, that he always wants to use cash, which is quite interesting. Um, the only time he did it was just because, um, was just because he actually didn't have the cash in order to do it. Um, um, and I think Walmart came in with like a huge, uh, Walmart came in with like a huge PO or, or I think it was actually Sam's club, um, which I know is still Walmart, but, um, but, and he was like, oh, we need, you know, a million dollars, um, you know, whatever to produce this. And, and, and he didn't have it in the, in the bank. So, um, it made sense. So, um, it's, there's no like one right, right way, right. For all these things, but it's always just kind of hearing interest in hearing about how different entrepreneurs are, are thinking about these types of things. Yeah, having those big POs from like a Walmart, a Sam's Club, a Target, and then leading on inventory financing is so much more of like a reliable bet. Um, when you still have a lot of kinks to work out, I think that's when people turn into to equity crowdfunding or equity funding rather than any kind of credit or loans of any sort. Totally. And I think too, when you do have like a retailer, for example, versus like e-commerce, like e-commerce sales can go up and down, right? It's not, um, uh, it's not quite, I mean, hopefully sales are just kind of, um, increasing, you know, every day, but, um, you, I'm sure you, you probably have your good days. You have your bad days. Um, you also have, you know, um, it also could be seasonal in some ways with, you know, black Friday or, um, or, you know, cyber Monday or, or kind of these big moments in time. Whereas with, um, with, with retail, it seems a bit more kind of structured, um, right. Like you have a PO, you fulfill the PO. And then of course, um, your product sits, you know, in the store or, or in the warehouses for a certain period of time. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting thing that we have to explain to investors, especially if they're not a hundred percent CPG investors early stage. It's, um, it's like there are reset calendar timelines for our category. Like there are sometimes when, whenever a new retailer brings you on, it might be, Maybe it's spring that they reset and you might get a massive PO for the spring, but all your follow-up POs are a little bit smaller, they're adjusted, maybe during a different, like for us, we're not a big giftable product, right? So holiday is less big for us, but what's massive for us is what we call Q5, that new year, new you season where people are looking to make sustainable swaps in their life, healthier products for themselves. And like, that's our, that's our holiday. Um, and that's what we lean on and then prime day in July. And then of course, Amazon likes to throw a prime day here and there all of a sudden and um, having to explain these like random spikes up and down throughout the year rather than kind of like a stable, like um, hockey stick growth or whatever type of growth throughout the year. Um, it is interesting for a CPG brand. I think what's important just is to show of course, quarterly growth, but honestly, just the end of the year growth of, of what we're able to create, I think is, is really impactful. And we have to remind ourselves that a lot as a team, I think there's a lot of pressure as small brands and, and startups to say, okay, like week over week, you're growing month over month, you're growing by a absurd percentage. Um, but if you're working towards a massive spike with a really big retail par partner, a really successful prime day, that's okay too. And 
if there are some slumps of ups and downs, that's so natural for our space. And something I think we, uh, our team and myself, like definitely still gets nervous about and has to remind myself of very often. How are you also thinking about, you know, I know that you said on your retail strategy, you're kind of doing a series of tests as long as they're not too cost effective um, with, you know, Myers, CVS, Wegmans. And that's all. And also what's interesting too, is you were, you, you were they're in different, on the geography side, they're in like different ge- geographies, it seems too, which is also quite interesting. Um, how, how else do you think about tests like in, like in, in the current kind of climate right now with cost of capital, you know, becoming um, a lot more expensive as well? Um, where you, when you're kind of thinking in terms of um, like, how are you overall right now? Like thinking about like your, your retail strategy. Yeah. Um, and, and so interesting with the market right now with fundraising and capital and everyone's like, okay, are you now all of a sudden you need to have a profitable, like sustainably growing business, which is such a different mindset than it was previously, which also helped makes us rethink some, some growth opportunities naturally, but um, we're still, I think at that point where we're growing to grow and um, it's, it would be very easy at this scale to become uh, very profitable quickly. Um, but it might inhibit a lot of the brand awareness and growth we need to hit um, before being able to rewrite some of that. So trying to find that balance is really interesting for us of, okay, do we want to just like grow way slower and um, super profitably and not have to raise another cent ever again? Um, but then you're more entering like lifestyle business space, which I think has its own like stigmas word in its sense, which is so interesting. Um but, or do we want to be able to beat out competitors and get that shelf space down and secure it so that we're able to thrive and then can easily work on increasing our profitability later? Um, so those are those are kind of the two ways we're trying to think about it. But um, right now, what we want to see what our velocities look like on shelf and what we, adjustments we need to make and how much it truly costs to be successful on shelf for us um, for expanding it too much into um, way more retail partners. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I think, I think also, um, what I've kind of heard is bits and pieces of, of, you know, interesting perspective is, um, you know, once you're in retail, really trying to get those velocities up and stay on shelf, uh, before kind of expanding to, uh, to new retailers, because if you kind of go too fast, too quick, then, you know, maybe you're not going to be merchandising properly. You're not going to really pay attention to it. And then if your velocity slip, then you're, you really only get typically like one shot at this. And so, so, so you then, uh, the retailer might, might not re up you for like the next run. Um, so it's all, I think, I think that's also like a great point in terms of, um, really kind of doubling down in terms of your effort when you do make a decision to own a retailer. Um, of course it's like, it, it, it's a test cause it's the first, you know, time in that retailer. Um, but really give it like your best shot in terms of making sure that you're able to, um, give your best shot in terms of getting your velocities up to a good rate so you can actually stay in that retailer too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's even before um, bringing on new brands, we're hearing that a lot of retailers are looking to reduce what they have already on shelf before even looking at anything else. And that's a pretty crazy market to be in. And it's like, okay, they're thinking about like, okay, why do we have uh, 15 facings of the same incumbent we've had for years and then there's all of these new brands, merging brands that could potentially crush it that are still waiting in line to get that shelf space. And 
I think retailers are going to have to rework a lot of that. And that's going to be very upsetting, I think, for a lot of larger incumbents. Uh, but something we've heard from supplier summits we've gone to, from some of our retail partners, that they're trying to, to restructure how crowded and um, busy the shelf looks, too. And that makes it even more important for us to describe how we're different and how we're going to crush it on shelf. My final question to you is, what would you value more? $100 of COGS of of your inventory um, or $100 cash? So, so I would say $100 COGS because I love gifting product and building relationships with people that can then take that product, share it with their community. And I think the word of mouth in our space is so strong. So um, I would probably take the, those cogs, take the product and gift it to a bunch of influencers and see that um, return be much higher. Yeah. Or, 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 I mean, that, that's a great answer or, or obviously sell that the, those a hundred dollars yeah, worth of cogs. And then, sure. and then, and then, you know, if you're, if you have any type of margin, then that is more valuable than, than the a hundred dollars of cash. Well, Katie, this has been such a blast. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. I love talking about this. This is awesome. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Katie. Katie, thanks for coming on our podcast. This is Recogs, the show where we learn how the world's best business operators build consumer brands from sourcing to selling. This is brought to you by Manufactured. Manufactured is an online platform that helps brands manufacture, finance, and distribute inventory across 20 industries in 25 countries. If you're looking for inventory financing help or you're looking for manufacturing help, please check us out at manufactured.com. We would love to see if we're able to help you. Thanks for listening.